Well, hey, um, uh, I am the youngest of four, and um, our family friend uh, is a heart doctor. And uh, my brother Pete had the opportunity to go to a surgery, which is like kind of a bucket list for each of us to go into a, a surgery and watch a heart doctor do work on a real heart. So let me tell you, I mean, like a lot of people have bucket lists, like I, I want to go to like London or I want to go to the beach or something. It's like pastor geeks want to see heart surgeries, right? So let me tell you about this, okay? So my brother like gets all garbed up in uh, doctor gear, gets the mask on, and uh, is escorted into this team of, of doctors, right? And if you've seen like Spies Like Us, it was like doctor, 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 doctor. this is Dr. Newman, Dr. Newman, you know, right? And, uh, and the main guy, our friend, is like, Dr. Newman, um, we're going to do some, some heart surgery today, a couple bypasses and things like that. Uh, it's going to be a process. It's going to be a little bit messy. Um, it's going to hurt a little bit for the patient, but in the end, um, it'll be for his good. And, uh, and, and, uh, and so the doctor like, looked at my brother, and he's like, is, is that okay? And uh, he was like, I concur. I concur. I'm okay with that, right? And so they took out like, this like, cutting tool, this big drill, and opened up his chest, right? And just things were flying everywhere. I know, it's Sunday morning, but like, blood was going everywhere, and um, ripped open his chest, and looked at his rib cage and opened up the rib cage, right? Just like tore it open, and there it was, friends, like a real beating heart, okay? In the flesh, literally, okay? And um, the doctor looks at him and is like, well, we're going to have to work on that. And so they, they, they put a little machine and they hooked it all up and they turned on the machine and the machine like allowed the blood to flow into the machine and like through the rest of the body and it like kept the rest of the body living while that heart went boom, 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 right? No beating. And the doctor said, all right, now it's time to do a little work on the heart. And so he started cutting and started taking apart things. And there was like all these arteries that were clogged and things that like needed work on. And he looked at my brother and he's like, well, uh, we, looks like we need a few new parts, a few new veins. What do you think we should do? And my brother's like, well, um, I don't know. And he said, well, we need to find some new stuff. We need to find some new veins. Where should we go about looking for that? And my brother said, I, um, I agree with whatever your decision would be, right? And so he like opened up a leg and kind of like dug around in there and pulled out a vein. And he said, well, this will work, you know? And so he pulled it on out and started like attaching it to the heart. And then he looked at him and he said, you think it'll work? And my brother's like, I hope so. And he took his finger and he reached on down. He had a glove on. And he went like this. To the heart. And he went. And it started beating. And he looked at the team of doctors and he said, This heart is revived. It worked. 
We did it. Isn't that a great story? Don't you want to see one now? <laughs> Some of you are like, oh, no, I can't handle that, right? Well, uh, where would you go in the Bible if you wanted to learn about hearts being revived? Where would you go? The answer uh, might surprise you this morning, um, but it's Chronicles. We got a couple of hands up, yeah? It's Chronicles. First and second Chronicles. Which your, your first reaction might be like, what? Are you kidding me? That's like, those are the books I slept through, I'm pretty sure. Like, you know, it's like somewhere at Leviticus I fell asleep and then I woke up around the Psalms. Are you kidding me? Like, hearts being revived in those books? I'm, I'm, okay, you got my interest. I'm paying attention, right? In the Old Testament, uh, 850 times the term heart is used. 63 times in First and Second Chronicles, 19 in First Chronicles, and 44 times in Second Chronicles. Isn't that interesting? So over the pages of these chronicles, and biblically it's just one book, and when we canonize the scripture, we broke it into two just to help us out a little bit. But the, the writer of, of the book of Chronicles, which I think was Ezra, had it on his mind and his heart to communicate to the reader the dispositions of the heart. It's like a major theme in this book. As you watch each character seek after God and respond to Him and not respond to Him, the writer is not concerned about outward obedience, what he does on the external, but what goes on in the heart. And you'll see as we start navigating through this book what the Lord can do with a heart that is fully His. So the heart's a big deal in the Scriptures, okay? And, uh, and that's why we're going to live here for a while. Uh, we will be in this book until uh, Good Friday. So I'm excited to knuckle down and go for Second Chronicles, okay? And we're calling this series Revival. And, and so I'd like to just spend some time in this first Sunday studying this book to define our terms a little bit so we all know what we're talking about, okay? So uh, here's just the first question. What is revival? Uh, I've been doing a lot of reading since 2006 on the, the subject of revival, okay? And if you frame it like that, it, like um, if you say, well, I've been doing a lot of reading on it, immediately your mind would jump to something of the sort where maybe revival uh, is is a hobby for Newman, much like uh, people love studying a world war, right? Some historical event that happens, it has a beginning date, it has an end date, and, um, and that's, that's what a revival means. It's something that happens externally uh, within history, and almost you begin to have this notion of, um, oh yeah, it doesn't really have any life on it, it doesn't have any flesh on it, it's just something to study and think about. Um, but actually, when, when you start looking simply at the word, at the just definition of revival, um, it, it just means life. So look, look at the root word, just 
That, that, that root word, revival, that vive comes from our English word to vivify, to bring about life, to make alive, to awaken, or some uh, definitions say to restore to life. And then when you attach that little prefix on there, revival, to re, to bring back to life, it brings on a different slant or a different connotation. It's kind of like that guy who went into the heart surgery, who was, he was living, but he needed help. He needed some, some, some surgery, something to happen to his heart to make it wholly functional again. He needed like this newness or this breath to be breathed in his heart so that blood would flow uh, to the rest of his body. In short, uh, this, this word revival is used for Christians in the Christian context. Revival begins with believers who are awakened once again, and perhaps they were sleeping, uh, to the joy of their salvation and their mission, like their, their heartbeat for a living life. So words in the scriptures like revive, restore, or renew are often used interchangeably in the scriptures. So it's this guy, this picture of the Christian who gets up on the table, who needs revival, he needs heart surgery, and God himself comes down and does this this cleaning, this flick of the heart in order for it to beat and be whole again. A healing happens. Um, as, as we go throughout this series, uh, I'd love to use a, a definition that I have found most helpful. It's by a guy named J, J. Edwin Orr, um, and it says this. It says that revival are times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. We just sang about that. Times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. So just to take a step back a little bit, revival is not just some event that you can schedule and put on the calendar and uh, manipulate the environment so that it's just perfect, so that everything can happen according to man's plan and you can get God to do what you want. No, it happens in the heart. It happens in each individual, and it starts with the church. And it's important to like define these terms right away, or else immediately we'll start thinking and anticipating and waiting for an event to happen. And that's not exactly the case. You can't schedule this stuff or um, get just the right elements in place so that a revival will take place. Uh, John 3 talks about how God moves and and says that the Holy Spirit um, is like the wind and the wind blows where it wishes. You can hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. You can't control this, this power that works. You can't make revival happen, but <laughs> like there are some consistent things 
that we can see in Scripture and study throughout church history that has been present throughout revivals. So we're going to ask this question. How does it happen? How does revival happen? Okay? Uh, how do times of refreshing happen to the believer? How does the Lord work in order for a reviving experience occur? So we're going to start uh, today in the scriptures with one of the most significant uh, events in, um, in the history of Israel. When the building of the temple occurred and, uh, and Solomon dedicated it. And if you're a Gentile, uh, which I don't see anyone uh, wearing a yarmulke uh, this morning, so that pretty much means everyone among us. If you are a Gentile, you probably need a little refresher about the importance of the temple uh, in, the, in um, Israel's history. It was God's dwelling place in the Old Testament. Uh, he, he resided there, which is crazy to think, that he, he showed up and was in a building structure. The temple held the Ark of the Covenant, which was a symbol of grace uh, to the people. And uh, in the temple, sacrifices were made, uh, blood sacrifices were made for the sins of the people. And as a result, it was the center of everyone's attention, uh, time, and uh, the culture was built around the temple in the Old Testament. Uh, when David was king, um, he, it was his like, life ambition to follow after God and build God a house. That's what he wanted to do. He prayed about it all the time. And in his lifetime, he made a lot of preparations for it. And he talked with God and he pleaded to the Lord. He wanted to build God a temple. And uh, after a while praying to God, God responded and said, Hey, David, um, it's not in my plan that you would build a temple. You've been to war too much. You've got too much blood on your hands. I'm going to let your son Solomon do it. Um, and so uh, when the people of Israel saw King David die and they saw Solomon um, be bestowed to the throne, they were like waiting. They were holding their breath to see if Solomon was going to follow the Lord, to see if he was going to be a man like his father that sought after him and obeyed him by building the temple. And so one of the first things that Solomon did it was announced that he was going to build the temple, right? And so he started making a ton of preparations. He ordered more cedar from Lebanon. Uh, he got 30,000 Israelites, gathered them up and equipped them and sent them to do various projects. Uh, some numbers, 150,000 uh, other folks, other servants, Phoenician artists, craftsmen from Tyre, um, gold, gold, and more gold, and more gold, and more gold, and everything was built in seven years. Isn't that crazy? Uh, some folks from among us just built a house. How would you like to have it take seven years to build, right? Isn't it crazy? We sometimes say, oh, seven months, that's a long time. Seven years for this house. And after it was built, it was like, so are we good to go? It's like, like, we've got this really cool building. Is that all we need? 
And so what does Solomon do? Like, in order to have times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord, you pray and ask the Lord for his presence. Right? It's like really clear in the scriptures. So the whole motive of building the temple was to have God, to have himself there, to dwell there. So that's what he did. He prayed to the Lord and asked him to come and dwell in the temple. And just a short note before we head there. Um, this is just a, by the way, side note. We could have the prettiest building, couldn't we? Like we're a part of a movement of churches that plant churches in the Y. Um, Ys across the globe are not typically glorious in splendor as it relates to buildings. But this one's pretty beautiful, isn't it? And it would all be a wash if we just talked about the glory of the architecture. But if we never asked the living God for his presence, what are we doing? Amen? Let's watch and see how God shows up. Okay? Turn to me to 2 Chronicles chapter 6. 2 Chronicles chapter 6. And we're going to start in verse 18. I'll give you a little bit of time to find it. And while you're flipping there, I just want to give a plug that um, it would be great to read Solomon's prayer in its entirety in your reading plan. They're left on your chairs. We want to help you walk with God. One of the best ways we can do that is encouraging you to be a, a man or woman in the Scriptures. And so grab your reading plan, follow along with us. There's readings every day, questions uh, to prod your heart and uh, to learn more about what God says through his scriptures. I'll read it for us. Here's 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 18. This is such a great question. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house I have built. That's just a quick summary of Solomon's prayer. He got down on his knees, he raised his hands, and he pleaded with the Lord. And he longed for the glory of God to be made in all the earth. Like he wanted the Lord known, and he knew that if that was going to happen, the presence of the very living God had to dwell in the temple. And so he said, will this happen? Is this really true? Is this like, your plan on the earth, will you dwell here among us? And watch what God does just a few verses later. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1. Let your eyes scroll down there. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven. It's a lot like Abraham's prayer in the book of Genesis. A lot like Elijah's prayer came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. All right, so Solomon prays, and God first responds with his presence, and then God speaks. 
Okay, the people of Israel are going, oh my word, look at the presence of God filling the temple. And now, hey, uh, how's this going to work? Like, how are we supposed to relate to you? How are we supposed to have a relationship with the living God? In essence, like the quick and dirty, what am I supposed to do? Okay, and so God gives really clear instructions. This is one of the most famous verses in, in the Old Testament. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Watch how God lays out the path to walk with him. Are you ready? If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, this is God speaking, and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. You guys know that verse? Isn't that a great one? Some of you might have heard it like on 4th of July, pastors applying it directly to like America or something, but we're gonna really spend some time here um, over the course of the next few weeks. Did you see those four things that God said? With regards to relating to him, what kind of heart does God listen to? What kind of heart does he relate to and desire from us and help us? It's a humble heart, one that humbles themselves, one that prays, hey, I want to talk to you. One that seeks his face, not just his hands, what can you do for me, but wants to know him by seeking him. The one that turns, a metaphor of repentance, one that moves away from evil and turns towards God. Those four things, oddly enough, have always been consistent in biblical revivals where we've seen a people turn from their ways and look to God as well as throughout church history. And just to give you a, a short preview of the month of February, we're going to study different kinds of hearts through the lenses of different characters in Second Chronicles. We'll study uh, Rehoboam, and, and we'll look at his humble heart. We'll study Jehoshaphat uh, and, and how he had a praying heart. We'll study how Hezekiah had a heart that turned towards the Lord. And we'll study a heart that seeks him through the lens of Josiah. And hopefully, not only will it raise some biblical literacy in terms of knowledge of the Old Testament, but also it'll just soften our hearts to see how to walk with God. And we can ask these, these good questions uh, amongst each other and in our community groups, such as things like this. Hey, how's your heart doing in this area, in humbleness and praying and in turning to him and seeking him? Hey, in what areas do you feel stuck? Do you feel like you need a freshness, a healing, a reviving of your heart? Is there any clogged arteries in there that you need help with? Let's, let's walk together. What sort of renewal or healing do you need to experience from the Lord? In short, what do I need to do, right? Like what, what are the things that we as a people need to do in, in order to, to relate with God? 
So let me just tell you a story. Um, this is the story of the Welsh Revival, okay? Uh, this happened in the, the turn of the 20th century. Let me share with you how God worked among just one or two people to impact thousands, okay? Um, so in uh, November of 1904, uh, the Spirit of God began to work and blow like the wind uh, in, in this area. And uh, throughout Wales, people were experiencing um, an extraordinary movement of God. How did it happen? Um, uh, the, the church and like the villages and the townspeople all had this like common phrase that they would just say to each other. They weren't just like asking, hey, how you doing? Fine, fine, whatever. But like they had this common motto that they almost like sang to each other. And it was this, bend the church, save the world. <laughs> Isn't that wild? Bend the church, save the world. That was the cry that, that rang out. And th this one guy named Evan Roberts, uh, he was 26 years old and he was a coal miner. Uh, and God used him. He wasn't like um, this crazy educated guy or anything, but he had a fire for God. He wanted to be used by him and be obedient to him. And so he spoke the very heart of God wherever he went. And wherever he went, um, people just kind of caught on that there was this common message that this guy Evan said. And, and uh, this message was famously called the four points. How's that for creativity? Isn't that great? Here's, here was the four points, okay? Um, it was one, confess all known sin. Number two, forgive everyone. Number three, Obey the promptings of the Holy Spirit. That, that's what he said. Hey, every time you're prompted by the Holy Spirit, obey it. And number four, publicly confess Christ as your Savior. And as he continued to speak that message over and over again to the churches and in villages and towns, people responded to it. It was, it was like, it was amazing. The wind started to blow and new life began to pump in the heart of the church. There was intense conviction over sin. Uh, people were confessing, confessing their sins and uh, restitution was happening all over the place even though it was costly. Uh, here's just uh, some, some facts and some, some practical examples. Um, Within five months, 100,000 new converts had been added to the churches. People were coming morning and evening every day, and it wasn't a result of some celebrity speaker or some like cool marketing scheme. People were zealous. They desired the very presence of God. They wanted to hear from him through his scriptures and grow and be like him and know him. And as a result, they started to grow in holiness. And the culture began to see the impact in every nook and cranny of the society, okay? So like in, in Wales, all the brothels were closed as a result of, of God moving in the lives of their people. Um, people who were in debt, all outstanding debts were paid. 
Uh, this is going to get you, especially on a Super Bowl Sunday. Major sporting events were canceled or postponed due to lack of interest. People were like, eh, big deal, right? Watch this. Judges were presented with white gloves because there was no more cases to try. The illegitimate birth rate was reduced by 44%. I like this one. Mules in the farm fields had to be retrained because all the farmers stopped cussing. <laughs> Isn't that wild? Well, we've got to figure out new ways to tell them how to do stuff because we won't say those things anymore because we love God now. As news of the revival spread, God began to move in other countries around the world, even the United States. January 20, 1905, just a year and some change later, the headline on the front page of the Denver Post read this, entire city pauses for prayer event at the high tide of business. In Portland, Oregon, 240 department stores signed a covenant agreeing to close their doors from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. each day. It's three hours. Each day. So that customers and employees could attend prayer meetings. In Atlantic City, ministers reported that out of the population of 50,000 people, only 50 adults were left unconverted the Welsh revival. You think God can do this again? Part of the reason that my family and I moved here was because we believe that he can. And we are praying that we in our lifetime would see a third great awakening. We'll talk about the first and second in the next few months. I believe he can do it again. And that's not just like in a, de a desire for an event to happen. That's a, a desire and a yearning that the people of God would love him with all their heart and mind and soul and strength, that they would, that they would look to him and humble themselves and be people of prayer that they would turn from their ways and that they would seek the face of God. Some definitions of revival simply say this, a spurred-on interest of spiritual matters. <laughs> it seems like a low bar, but it's just fair to say that people in general would increase their spiritual desire, their appetite, that they would that they, they'd be hungry for the things of God. He can do it again. And he's calling us to be prepared for it by first reviving our own hearts. Amen? Um, this is Psalm 69, verse 32. It says, You who seek God, let your hearts revive. So here's just the question for the day. Uh, the question to chew on and uh, write on the top of your journal uh, to stick on a three-by-five card and put it on the visor while you drive. Lord, do I need an EKG check spiritually? Like, 
In what ways do you want to mold and shape my heart? How is my heart disposition? Is it honoring to you? How do you want to change it? How do you want to shape it? Lord, what do I need to do? And friends, like brothers and sisters, this is to encourage you. Um, we're not in the Old Testament anymore. We don't need temple sacrifices anymore. If I ask the question, what do I need to do in order to get right with God? Oftentimes, like the American mindset is like, well, like I'm needed get on my pony and start riding. I need to like get going. I need to get better at stuff. Like the Olympics is going on. America's number one. I need to be number one in everything that I do. Super Bowl is coming. It's big. I need to like, I need to become better at all these spiritual things. And immediately when you start thinking like that, it leads to like this lonely, depressed state of spirituality. And what really God is asking us of today is not to be a dead sacrifice to go on top of the Ark of the Covenant, but in the New Testament, to be a living sacrifice. He's saying to you, brothers and sisters, hey, how's your heart? Can you crawl up on that operation table and be willing to like open yourself up to me? Can you be honest with me? It might get a little messy. It might hurt a little bit as I, as I open your, your heart up and do a little surgery but it's worth it. It'll be so good. Surgery is a little scary, isn't it? Anyone ever have surgery? It is a little scary. You can feel a little lonely in that operation room. But in this passage, like one of the shiniest gems that I'd like to just point out to you and close with is found in verse 18. So if you have your finger in chapter 6, Open it on up again and read it with me, okay? This is 2 Chronicles 6, verse 18. It's Solomon's question that ultimately is answered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Ready? But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Isn't that the great question? That the whole like, story of the Bible, the whole meta-narrative of Scripture answers, it screams like, Yes, absolutely, absolutely God will dwell among us. It's Jesus. Like, yes, he had to. Like when humanity cries out to God, how in the world am I supposed to make like, this thing work? How am I supposed to be right with God? Like I'm this square peg. How am I supposed to fit in this round hole? And the deal is that God made it work. How will God dwell among men? Is that God sent God. Light from light. Very God from very God. He sent this, the second person of the Godhead, 
the Son, Jesus, so that He would dwell among us. He was fully God and He was fully man. And our, our Savior, Jesus Christ, He humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Scripture says that He made Him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to become sin, to become that, that square peg in the round hole so that we could know God, so that we could fit, so that we could know Him and get to heaven, so that we might become the very righteousness of God. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not alone. He dwelled with us. And it doesn't even stop there. Like when He ascended, the Son, He sent the Spirit. And the Spirit indwells, there's that word again, the Spirit dwells within us. It's His ministry. And He gave us the Word of God, Colossians 3 says, so that it would richly, what? Dwell among us. Like we have been given so much so that we may know and walk with Him. So we can give our very lives to Him in the process of being a living sacrifice. Crawl up on that table and say, Hey, Lord, would you do your work in my heart? I need it. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your word that is at work. Would you do it? Are you willing? Hey, if you're not, let's walk with you. All God wants you to be is honest with him. And he takes that old and decrepit and dark and hard heart. And if you just say, I don't know where to start, God comes and flicks it. If you have never been made alive spiritually for the first time, if you've never been born again, I invite you to receive him today. To open up the door of your heart and say, Lord, I need you. I hear you knocking. Would you come in for the first time? John says, for as many as received him. If you've never received Christ by faith and repentance, do it. It's the best thing you can ever experience in this life and the life to come. And if you need to be revived, like me, I invite you in the course of the next weeks to crawl up on that heart surgery table and ask the Lord to do a work in you. Now, we're going to close our service kind of like Solomon did, where he dedicated this, this building to the Lord and asked God to dwell. Uh, we're just going to have a prayer of dedication. And so I'd invite Joe and the worship team to come up. And uh, we're just going to pray four things from Scripture. You don't have to have them all figured out right now, like how to be humble, how to pray, how to seek God, how to turn today what, what we're encouraging you to do and calling you to do is just to be willing. Lord, I don't know what that looks like, 
but I know that I need something. I'm missing. There's something going on in my heart. I think only like one or two of the rest of the like chambers are working. Would you, would you revive those? And so I'm just going to say one of them and we're going to pray and then I'm going to pray. I'm going to say another one. I'm going to give you time to pray and then I'll pray. So let's go unto the Lord. Lord, we, right now, we're going to dedicate this to you. Psalm 16 says that if we commit our ways to you, that you will be honored and blessed, and that we'll experience great joy and satisfaction in you. And so we, we ask that you would move now. And in the next weeks, would you use Second Chronicles in all of our hearts? Lord, first me. Lord, would you break down any walls in my heart that, I, that I've built up and that I don't even know about? Would you breathe new life where there is staleness? And would your Holy Spirit do a great work? Lord, make us humble people. And right now, we just pause and pray, Lord, would you teach us how to walk with you humbly? to pray. That's what your disciples asked. The one thing they could ask your son, they asked them, teach us to pray. Would you make us a praying people? Lord, forgive us when it seems like we've just forgotten you. As we pray more, teach us to pray more. Give us the words. Put people on our hearts. Lord, in the break times at work and lunchtime, Lord, in our commute time, Lord, would we pray? And we pause now and ask you. everything else. Lord, forgive me for seeking Amazon instead of your scriptures in the morning. Lord, there are so many affections in my heart that just raise up instead of a, a love and a desire for you. Lord, take those idols away from me and your people. Pray now together that we'd be seeking your face.
that we would be a repentant people, a people that constantly, continuously are turning from the idols of their heart and towards you, God. Lord, we don't even know all of our sin, but we know we know that we want to please you with our life. And so we cling to Matthew 5, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We want to be that. Would you purify us? Burn away the dross, Lord. Refine us. And help us. Help us to turn and to value you above all else. Help us to waste our lives on you. And we pray now as just individuals. with you.